Hey everyone, I'm Alan Smithson. Today we're speaking with Martin Enthed, Digital Manager at IKEA Communications, who's also part of the IKEA Digital Lab, looking five to seven years out into the future of how we bring retail to the masses. Martin is also part of the Kronos Group, an organization working on the open standards for spatial web and 3D world. All that and more coming up next on the XR for Business podcast. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alan, and thank you for having me here. It's my absolute pleasure. This interview has been long overdue. You've had to get a ton of approvals and everything, so we're very, very lucky and honored to have you on the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Let's get into it. Maybe you can describe uh, how you got to where you are and the the role that you're at with IKEA. I started uh, 13 years ago now, in 2007, and I was hired to try to make um, a use of computer graphics into like a volume production instead of just doing a, a few models or images a year to large volumes and building those backend tools, coding and setting up standards and everything up to 2011. And then they hired me to do all development for that company, IKEA Communications. And I've been the IT manager and development manager for that all the way up to now two years ago when I became digital manager there. Then I headed up what's called IKEA Digital Lab that you mentioned. Now I'm working mainly with that, looking into the spatially aware 3D future. So how is IKEA using these tools now? As I think it's a big shock when you explained to me how the magazine that we get some of the photos in there aren't real photographs, they're renders. And that story has been told a few times. So, but, but if I take it very short, it started really in volume 2012 ish. So it took like from 2007 to 2012. And in 2011, 2012, we did about 10 to 12,000 high res images a year. And I would say maybe 1500 of them were 3d. In the last five, six years, we have been doing about 50,000 high-res images a year, and about 35,000 of them is 3D, mainly the product images and those those things you find there. And then, of course, a lot of the kitchen brochures and such are 3D. So if you take a kitchen brochure from, from our stores and look through that one, you will see a lot of 3D. If you take the IKEA catalog, then it's much, much, much less because most of the time we also do video sessions in those, and that's so much easier to do in a real set. But it's a lot of 3D, but that's the offline rendering stuff. That's in huge production right now. So that's kind of pervasive now. So when you're looking at the kitchen catalog, most of those renders are all in 3D. It's funny because Helen Papagenin, this author of Augmented Human, she's got this game, Augmented Reality or Real. And I've gone through the magazine. I can't tell. I really can't tell what's real and what's 3D. So kudos to you guys for making it realistic. Mm-hmm. So we we render something and we have the best quality of everything. What about real-time rendering? I know a couple of years ago, you guys experimented with VR uh, and also the IKEA Place app and kind of real-time rendering of spatial objects. What's kind of on the roadmap there? The exploration stuff internally started already in 2010 when we made some... Um things that was running in a browser and then we sent off a a small little file that's told how that scene was set up and then rendered with an offline rendering and sending it back again in 10 seconds and it worked worked nicely the problem is that we have so many customers on our web (laughs) page so we can't really have a high-end computer waiting for a user like that so that didn't really fly 
Then in 2012, the IKEA catalog app uh, had uh, AR in it. So we used the catalog as a marker. I think we were one of the first big companies in the world using marker-based AR. And it was only five pages total in the first one. And then it was added even more the next year and the next year and the next year. So all the way up to we did the AR stuff with ARKit in 2017, if I don't say it wrong, then all the way up to there, it was marker-based. And then the Apple guys came with a brilliant ARKit and it worked beautifully and we could switch. And so we didn't need the app. And then we also made the standalone app, Wikia Place. I think it's half a year later or something like that. Then it came the same in the Android version, the Air Core. That's how we've done AR so far uh, when it comes to all the things. And then just recently now you might have read that we have made a new thing with the new Apple iPad with the LiDAR stuff, adding functionality that wasn't possible before. I haven't read about that. Okay. <laughs> we just ordered one of our iPad Pros. So it, for, for those of you who are new to this, the iPad Pro 2020 edition comes with a LiDAR scanner, which allows you to kind of point cloud map your world and embed 3D objects in a very contextualized way. Yep. So how are you guys using that? The way you are saying, actually, so I can't say much as it is not that public. Uh, not many people have got their hands on it yet, but as soon as you do, then try it. It's at least as promising as the Tango was back in the days, uh, but now it's on a more powerful device and it can do more. So it, it looks really promising. We've been waiting for something like this for a long time. So something like this, just to kind of give people an understanding of how they could use it. If the iPad scans your room and sees that you have a desk, you could put a lamp on that desk. And even if the desk had multi-levels, it would understand that, oh, I could put something on different levels and that sort of thing. Are you able to then cast shadows on to stuff like that? Like how far are you guys taking this? I will see. It, it depends on how detailed we can make the, the meshes. We haven't tried that yet, but it would be possible to do occlusion. That's at least theoretically possible. Super exciting. I keep seeing these videos pop up of people doing occlusion in their living rooms and stuff. I'm like, man, our iPad can't come fast enough. <laughs> you are part of the digital lab looking out kind of into the future. So you're also part of the Kronos Group, which is an organization uh, working on kind of the open standards of the 3D web. Yeah. Maybe you can talk about how the vision of the future, you've been doing this since 2007. You've seen 3D morph into this accessible tool to everybody. If you had asked five years ago, will 3D be on everybody's phone? I probably would have said, not really. You know, here's a Tango phone and good luck. But every phone in the world now has the ability to show 3D and now AR. You must be looking out into head-worn devices as well. Yes, definitely. The thing is that we, we truly believe that interaction with our customers will increasingly be spatial or 3D-based. That's also, in a way, needed for us to reach the many people that we want to reach. That, that's the whole idea now, trying to increase the number of people we are reaching from about would you say a little bit under a billion to maybe three times that uh, in a few years. And it's hard to do that with physical spaces only. So that's one of the things that we need to do. And if you want to interact with us from your home then and understand the things that you are able to buy, then it has to be spatial in some way. So what you're saying, you, you want to bring the Billy bookcase to everyone? Yeah, <laughs> I think we almost have done that, but <laughs> it's selling a lot. <laughs> 
the, the thing is that actually IKEA's vision is to create a better everyday life for the many people. It doesn't in the vision say anything about furniture. Uh, we do it by doing well-defined furniture for people with thin wallets. That's the whole idea. But but uh, it, in the vision, it's nothing about furniture. It's it's a lot about many people. So um, yeah, going back to 3D and computer graphics, um, the thing is to, to to be able to do this, we, we have to handle uh, a lot of 3D data, of course, and moving 3D data between different applications has always been hard. Back in 2007 and 12 and 14 and 15, it's still been hard all along because nobody's really cared about the problem. That's what, at least my point of view. I, I would have to second that. I actually have a slide in one of our decks and it says 3D is a pain in the assets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you can move the polygons okay. You can get UV coordinates over, but anything that has to do with, yeah, maybe the diffuse texture you can get over, but anything that has to do with how the surface reacts to light, whatever you want to call that, a shader or a material or a BRDF, whatever your vocabulary is, that has never been standardized. And and I've been asking for it all the way since we talked the first time at Seagraph in 2013. And I think two years ago, something happened and people were starting to talk about standard surface. The MDL guys from NVIDIA started to talking about things. Dasso came with the enterprise PBR and, 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 and people are talking about it now. And, and there are movements, but it's moving a little bit slow. What's enterprise PBR? I, the standard surface MDL and enterprise PBR, if I say it right now, is different ways of describing in a generic way a material definition. So the standard surface and enterprise PBR, both of them, in my opinion, are what I could call uber shaders. It's a one way of describing a shader for a material. MDL is a little bit more complicated than that in the NVIDIA's things, but those are at least candidates for being a generic ways of describing material. Standard surface is part of uh, material X and that you might have heard of. So somebody who, let's say, for example, there's a, a furniture store, local furniture store, and they want to create a 3D version of their catalog. The problem that I see is that one, where do you get the 3D models made? Two, how do you make them? Three, how do you store them? Four, how do you make changes to them? Five, what are the standard formats and are they going to work on all? Yeah, that, that standard surface and MDL and enterprise PBR and all that is all far over your head and you won't get anything of that. Exactly. So how do we get to a point where I can, as a marketing manager of a company, start to use 3D as a daily tool for me without having to take 10 years of education to learn what a file format is and how to apply a mesh onto, you know, this is, it's crazy and it shouldn't be. That'd be like saying to you, Hey Martin, I'm going to send you a picture by a JPEG and you got to put the RGB colors back into it. Yep. They come in a side cart. That's how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is yeah. like, who thought of this? Yeah. This is madness. Yeah. That's one of the things we, if we go back to Kronos, why we are where we went in two and a half years ago and be part of Kronos. And actually, since if a month now, also a part of Kronos board, is it's because of this because they had a format in there, it's called GLTF, it's in the 3D formats working group. And GLTF is an open standard, fairly well defined, uh, physically based render uh, that you can use for real time graphics on your website or on a phone if it's an Android phone. That's a way of doing it. 
And the equivalent from an iOS phone is used Apple's version of uh, USD that Pixar has defined. So you have two formats actually that works on phones. So what, what happened to the open WebXR standard then if now we have two formats, that's not really standard? A GLTF is standard and USD is standard. Not if you need a different format on an iPhone. Uh, but that, that you have to talk about to the people who makes the phones. <laughs> Got it. So, so basically what happens, and I want to make this clear because this is a problem in the world of our world that everybody's moving towards a standard so that everybody can say, okay, GLTF's the standards. We're all going to wrap around this. And then Apple comes along and says, no, we're, here's a new format. Yep. But it's better that with two than like 14 that I had two, four years ago. True. So it, it's a, it's a movement in the right direction. And, I, and I've seen some USDZ converters come up so that you can convert between GLTF and USDZ and stuff. So there's workarounds, but that's truly, that's like saying VHS and beta still. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure that I'm clear with this because I'm, I'm still learning and this stuff is evolving daily. So you're on the cutting edge of this. By joining the, the Kronos Group board now, is this like, did Apple walk away from this or did they just... I think Apple is part of the board in Kronos still, so they are part of that. If they want to collaborate in this or not, that's really up to them. But they are equivalent, GLTF and USD said The version of USD said that Apple is using is fairly equivalent. And there's actually, uh, we did some research, there's about 143 model formats um, of that. There's, like you said, 10 to 14 that people actually use, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of 3D formats. I don't know how many years it took for the JPEG to become the gold standard of images, but even if you look at that, you've got PNGs and JPEGs and there's a hundred different formats, but then one just became the easy one to send. It. And then it took a few years also for the JPEG to look the same in different browsers or different phones or anything. So just making the, the color come up correctly. So it takes time. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about Kronos, uh, now I'm in there, so of course I'm a little bit partial in this, but they, it, it's a group where anyone can join and everybody has an equal vote. That doesn't mean, though, that it moves fast. I think it moves fast now, at least the 3D formats, but at least everybody has an equal vote and everybody has a say. And I think that's good. And it's not only this. It's uh, vision processing, it's neural networks, it's parallel computing, it's virtual reality and 3D graphics. So it's many of the things that I'm super interested in in the same organization. It's funny you said that. I was just going to ask you, what of those things excites you the most? Uh, all of it together. That's what makes the yeah. magic. So, so 3D models, of course, are the Lego pieces that we build everything on. But, but the neural network stuff and everything is needed to be able to do automatic things. That's also why I'm looking for those people right now. I have ads out to add people to the lab. So let's put our futurist hats on. Let's look out 10 years. I want to buy some furniture for my house. What does that look like? Or, or I want to interact with, with Ikea in general. Maybe it's not even furniture at this point. What does it look like when I, as a consumer, interact with the IKEA brand? It's very hard to look 10 years out, but there are some glasses there uh, from somebody. Don't know who will make the first ones that we then look back on and say that that was where it all started when it comes to glassware uh, with stereo and AR and VR in the same, of course. And if that's there, then... There could be so many things happening. And then how people are using that will be the hard thing. Are you, is that something you put on in the morning and take off in the evening and you never want to have off? 
like people today can't even move without a smartphone. Ten years ago, people were like actually using phones to be phones to talking. <laughs> now, my phone actually is the worst phone. It does everything but <laughs> but talking. Yeah. So they like like the people who are now raised with smartphones. I wonder if they think of them as phones you talk in mainly or if it's a texting tool or if it's on a a blog tool or whatever it is it's something else <laughs> i have two kids 11 and 15 and they actually use their phones very very differently we've been we kind of give them carte blanche access to a phone my 15 year old uses snapchat to communicate with their friends and they send little tiny pictures maybe it's a picture of the corner of their head or like it's really kind of disposable photographs i would i would assume because they're really not flattering in my opinion mm -hmm. But that's how they communicate. They'll make a funny face and that they communicate through photos rather than typing. And then my other daughter, she's been using this app called House Party where they have a bunch of people and it's kind of like a collaboration thing and they all get together and they talk. So watching just even uh, kids that are a few years apart interact with devices, it's very interesting to see. Now, w one thing that I actually think will happen is that we will have, um, if, if we want to do really augmented things in the future we have to start looking at other things than just the visual and that's also why i'm in the lab we are looking at sound we are looking at simulation of sound and how sound changes when things are added and taken away and all those things we are looking at the compassional side of ar let's say that you and me would like to build a space together we have a workplace together and if I would like to you to see how this workplace looks from my point of view, I happen to be, let's say I'm, I, I'm a foot taller than you, or I happen to be, let's say, colorblind. How would that space look from my point of view? And so you can feel and see that, like making it a compassion thing. Ooh, I like that. See through another's eyes. Yeah. And then, of course, sharing it so you can be more than one person in the same space. Uh, AR is mainly single user today. And I think that's a shame because you have to look over the shoulder on the same device. Why should you? Being able to share the same space. I think we made it public a few years ago, already three years ago. We did this with the HoloLens in 2017, mm -hmm. I think. We made multi-user interaction with the first HoloLens. And it works great. It's so much fun to be able to do it together instead of doing it in single user and saving and sending over and all that. Have you seen a, there's a company called Croquet mm -hmm. that I was just introduced to mm -hmm. um, that does serverless multiplayer real-time collaborative web AR. Yeah, there is a lot of solutions doing this and they, the base of it is making a, a some kind of anchor. I think Microsoft mm -hmm. is calling them world anchors. I think Google mm -hmm. is called them VPS points or everybody has a solution for it today or ish a solution for it. And there are a lot of different companies who have solutions that claim that they can do this, but there is no open solution for it. So I can just register an AR, if you say so, experience anywhere in the world and you can go there and see it. That's not really there. And I don't know if it ever will be there, but I, I think it will come. Oh, I think so. I've interviewed enough people on this podcast working on it. So I'm assuming that will be a thing where you can anchor it. Yeah, you have to have a, an open standard for anchoring. <laughs> so that's on where you store them. So that's the problem. It's all this have, having a proprietary version, no problem at all. But you will have 25 of them. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is the problem. And it's interesting. We're building a guide right now to XR collaboration tools. How many XR collaboration tools do you think there are? Counting low, 60. There's 85 that we found. Yeah, I, I, I've seen 10 or 12, but it's normally a lot more than you see. So I would guess so. So we're at 85 and the ones that are actually in operation, there's probably about 60. So you're, you're bang on there. And I would guess that like more than half of them or even 80% of them are based on one or two of the game engines that are out there. Actually, I would say all of them are based on <laughs> Unity or Unreal. That's what I found too. Speaking of game engines, what other work is being done in the real-time game engine or web-based rendering? Because right now you've got IKEA, uh, the app, but when do you anticipate this will move into web? Does it have to happen? Does it matter? We already have, to call them editors or configurators or whatever you want to call them, on the web right now. You can plan your own kitchen and everything. And we, we have had that all the way since 2002 in different versions. So we have that kind of real-time graphics, and I've had that a very long time. So those are already web-based. Is that a proprietary engine, or like what is that running on? I think the ones that we have right now are a... I think the Kitchen Planner is a bot system from somebody. I don't remember the name of now. but And then uh, the uh, some of the configurators are things that we have built ourselves internally based on um, some JavaScript engine. I guess we do as most other companies do. We, we, we try to build our own when it's needed, so building on, on top of things. So looking out in the future, we'll have some sort of glasses. Hopefully it'll be multi-user experiences because that, that just really is exciting. And I, I love the fact of being able to see someone from a, someone else's eyes. I love that idea. You really have been in this thing from the beginning. And IKEA is more than just a furniture store, like you mentioned earlier. What are some of the environmental initiatives? Because I think this is really important for people to understand that IKEA is doing a lot more than just uh, making furniture and, and selling it. Well, I'm not working in this area, so you're putting me a little bit on the spot here. But but fine. Uh, <laughs> I think I know some of the, at least the public stuff. And I think that it's in Japan now that we are trying to rent out furniture. Uh, so not selling them directly. We are, of course, trying looking into how to build furniture or recycled material that we've done for a very long time. We should be, uh, I think we're almost all in place, to be fully self-sufficient with, with electricity for everything we do, from windmills and solar cells. And we are also selling solar cell panels for roofs. I think it started in UK. I'm not sure if it's expanded. I think it's in Sweden and so on. Expanding slowly into different countries. That is absolutely incredible. The, the fact that a, a company so large has put a mission out there to make people's lives better and looking at that holistically, I think, is the key to how we move forward, especially in these crazy times that we're experiencing now. I think a lot more consumer engagement is going to move. Obviously, it's already moved. None of us can leave our house right now. People still need furniture. They still need decorations. They still need to live their lives. So how do you feel this whole thing has contributed to the speed at which uh, people are adopting online purchasing? I, I think that in the present time, everybody is learning to become digital, even if you haven't wanted to before or haven't needed to before. So in both in the workplace and, and privately, people are trying out buying groceries online and they do, they do everything now. So, And we are, IKEA is present in almost all countries in the world. 
and that means that we will have customers and coworkers and subcontractors and so on all over the world affected by what's going on right now. I think this, uh, in a way, is changing uh, a lot of things. Let's see when we come out on the other side what, where, where that has gone, uh, made us become. But uh, normally all crises are pulling us all together, hopefully, and takes out the best in us, hopefully. It seems like that, uh, especially in this industry, it seems like everybody, when this happened, everybody's rallying together to say, what can we do to help? And I want to just give a shout out to everybody who's, uh, who's not just sitting on the couch watching Netflix, although there's a lot of that as well. But <laughs> for everybody out there that's putting their effort in and getting up every day, getting dressed, I know it's hard when you don't have to go anywhere, but um, putting in the effort to make this world a better place. And we will get through this as a, as a community. And so... I, I want to mention one more thing. Are you guys doing anything on smell? Because, man, wouldn't it be great to smell those those meatballs? <laughs> to be honest, yes. Yes, we do. We have the tactile things. And in that, we have actually pushed in touch and smell and taste. Maybe not taste, but at least smell. We, we sell, actually, a lot of products on smell especially scented candles, but there are other things also that actually sells on smell. So if we could, but that's really far out, but but if we could handle that in one way or another, that would be great. Touch is hard. Also, touch is very hard to I've tried a bunch of haptic gloves so far. Have you had any really good experiences with haptic gloves? Mm, no. <laughs> the thing is that you, like grabbing something, maybe you could do. But that's not really what people are after when it comes to us. They want to feel the surface, uh, yeah. how that f flows over your fingers. That means that you have mm. to stimulate the sensors that you have underneath the skin because that's actually where they are at. And you have to uh, read those vibrations in a, the right way. And you can actually record the vibrations correctly, but you can't play them back. It's like having a a fully-fledged HDR camera on one end because you can capture what a human finger feels, but then playing back with an old-time fax. That's how it feels right now when it comes to how, how a surface feels, not grabbing things. That you can, in, in a way, do. But that's not really what I'm after. No, I, I totally get it. If we're looking 10 years out, if you want to get crazy, I mean, brain-computer interfaces um, are kind of the next phase of this, you should be able to encode what it feeling in your fingertips look like. But that's, mm. whew, we're getting some crazy territory then. <laughs> the human brain is actually super interesting. The human brain is a, a almost like a 3D reconstruction engine. It, it builds a three-dimensional world for you based on so little data and builds that up while you are looking around and doing things. You, you, you do sit in front of a keyboard right now. Yes. Uh, okay. If you look at the H key, in the middle there. Mm -hmm. It's it's the H key and half the G key and half the J key. That's what you see on an arm's length distance, actually in full resolution, 60 pixels per degree retina display. That's the only thing you see. The rest, mm -hmm. as soon as you go from away from the H key out to the J and K key, you are down to a 10th of that resolution. And even if you go further out, you actually don't see color in a good way. So everything else is uh, something made up by your brain because you've seen it before and it actually fills in the data. It's, it's just that center thing that we have to figure out of giving a new image to or 
follow your eye movements or something in high resolution, but the rest doesn't really need high resolution. If you can solve that, then we can do almost anything in AR. The problem now is that we don't know where you're looking. <laughs> so we have to have high res everywhere. Yeah, I think this is going to be resolved. Um, we're starting to see the headsets come out. The HTC Vive Pro has you know, eye tracking or the new one has eye tracking. The, the Pico Neo 2, I believe, has eye tracking option. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would assume because uh, Facebook has bought an eye tracking company, Apple bought SMI. Eye tracking is the key to all of this. It's coming. And I think one of the things that, uh, obviously, um, you've tried the Vario or the Varo. Yep, Vario, yeah. Varjo. Varjo, yeah. They took a really nice approach of a fixed foveated rendering without eye tracking. But as they start to kind of figure out eye tracking in addition to what they've got, I think they've got a really nice solution for high end. But again, it's VR and it's a giant headset that has to plug into a supercomputer. So I think the, the more practical use case is trying to figure out how the phones and tablets can bring this experience. And I wonder if we can use the, uh, we actually tried this as an experiment, putting a virtual mirror, an AR mirror on a wall, and then using the back-facing camera to project the mirror and the front-facing camera to project your face onto the virtual mirror. But we tried this a couple of years ago and uh, it didn't work. The, the phone actually shut itself off. So I think it was more a processing rather than the fact you could do it. It just didn't do it. <laughs> the phone went boom. <laughs> so we're getting, the processing power is getting better. And then when you add eye tracking, it should be interesting. Yeah. And then the processing power we'll get on in our hands for the same amount of money in 10 years will probably be a thousand times more than today. So if you look back, that's what we, what we have been having as a development the last 10 years. So let's see what we can do with uh, a thousand times more power. What is one problem in the world that you want to see solved using XR technologies? Oh, <laughs> yeah, the possibility to reach the many with any kind of information. I think I have to expand that a little bit. The reason why I think 3D into the hands of the many will make it easier because I think it's if an image says more than a thousand words, then a three-dimensional thing or a three-dimensional space says even more for a human. So um, I, I think that will explain whatever it is much easier to anyone. And that will also make the, the common knowledge about things and how things works bigger in the world. And knowledge almost always makes us smarter and better together. It's an information engine for any use. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. And uh, you, know, you know, from the work we're doing and, and the stuff we've been doing, um, education is a, is a very big part of why we do this. And your answer is wonderful. Thank you. If an image is a thousand words, a 3D space is a thousand images. At least. <laughs> At least. Because it's exponential. So maybe it's a thousand times a thousand. Is there any last things you want to want to say? Is there where can people find uh, more information uh, about the work you guys are doing? Do you have a website that's specific to this? Yeah, I think if people are interested in 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 looking into like poss possible work opportunities, then our website is fairly easy to find. I have some public talks you can search for IKEA VR and Meatballs, and and if you want to see some talks I did a few years ago, they're still valid. And then I'm fairly easy to find on LinkedIn, so they can find me there. I'm actually going to look that one up. IKEA VR and meatballs. 
And I, oh, yep. one of the things that you guys made a while ago, and I don't know who made it, but it, it was only available in Toronto for a little bit. It was a uh, you could make pancakes in an IKEA kitchen in VR. It's still, I think, available on Steam. It's so awesome! You could run around and make pancakes. So if 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 you have a Steam account and a VR headset, you can start to make uh, IKEA pancakes. <laughs> I think it only works for the HTC Vive, but uh, it's still okay. It's still out there. Well, Martin, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can get access to all the new upcoming episodes. Thanks so much and stay safe, everyone.